Hello, Moth fans in D.C. Have you ever wanted to share your own moth stories on one of our stages or experience listening to local stories from your community? Join us each month for our Story Slams, our storytelling open mic competition at Miracle Theater. Prepare your five-minute story based on the night's theme or just come and listen to true tales from your community. Visit themoth.org slash DC to buy tickets and find out about our upcoming themes. And be sure to follow us on Facebook at The Moth or TikTok and Instagram at Moth Stories. Welcome to The Moth Podcast. I'm Jennifer Hickson, your host for this episode. Throughout 2022, The Moth has been celebrating its 25th anniversary by revisiting our history, counting down year by year. In this episode, we'll go back to the turn of the millennium, 2000. A truly auspicious year for The Moth because that February we held the very first Moth Story Slam at a small independent theater space in New York City called Dixon Place. The idea for a story slam was borrowed from poetry slams and retrofitted for storytelling. We'd hear 10 stories picked at random, and judges pulled from the audience would decide upon the winning story. Those winners would go on to compete in our Grand Slam. From those 10 stories told at Dixon Place, official Moth Story Slams are now held in 26 cities across the globe. And just today, I checked with Vela Voineva, who manages the Moth's enormous database, and we clock in at more than 43,000 slam stories. 43,597, to be exact. What are these 43,000 stories about? Well, after each show, brief story descriptions are written by the local producers. Just for fun, I looked up a few keywords in our searchable database. There's a lot of variation. Six mentions of trampolines. Six mentions of hamsters. Over 70 mentions of pizza. There are 236 stories involving revenge and 375 stories involving hair. And in very good news for humanity, the word love clocks in at 3,112 mentions. At each story slam, we have no idea what the tellers will bring to the stage. Pizza? Hamsters? Something else? And one of the most exhilarating parts of attending a show is wondering, what are we going to hear tonight? To try and replicate a little bit of that experience, we're going to do something kind of different this episode. Each year for our gala, The Mothball, we ask some of our Grand Slam champions from around the country to give us the one-minute trailer versions of the stories they told to win their local Grand Slam. So in lieu of bringing you to an actual show, here's a taste. Ten of those abbreviated versions of Grand Slam winning stories As a note, these stories were recorded at a bunch of different mothballs, some live and some virtual, so the audio is going to be a little different for each one. Here's Donna, Tere, Vivian, Pam, Juliet, Craig, Ruby, Phyllis, Wilson, and Ray. For my first solo venture out after the end of a long marriage, I go to a tantric body painting party. Where, who should appear but my (laughs) ex-husband. I'm horrified. And then I'm like, thank God there's someone here I know. (laughs) So the leader gathers us all together for the pujas, which are these spiritual exercises where every goddess will connect with every god. And we all form a circle, the men facing the women in the middle, and we step from person to person until inevitably 
I'm facing my husband. <laughs> and the puja that the group is given at this time is, you two have a long, rich history. <laughs> Hold each other and feel all that complexity. And then release each other into your futures. So life brings us a divorce ritual. <laughs> we hold each other, we release, we bow, and I step away to face my new partner. So I was a young reporter at the Miami Herald, and I got an assignment to cover uh, a midnight ride-along with the county's police agricultural patrol. And our mission that night was to stake out a group of notorious fruit bandits, because it's Miami and even our produce has a criminal backstory. Um, so we drive out to this mango grove, and we wait and wait and wait for hours. All of a sudden, the officer's radio crackles to life, and he shouts out, here they are, they're coming. We take off after them, a police helicopter shows up overhead, two police trucks appear out of nowhere, we are zooming through the mango groves in hot pursuit. All of a sudden, the officer looks to me and says, screaming over the sirens, if anything happens to me, there's a rifle in the gun rack. Uh, so what now? Um, First of all, I'm a journalist, and I cannot get involved in whatever the hell is about to go down right now. And secondly, if some crazy shit does go down, I am the last person who should be counted on to handle a gun. I come from a very long line of extremely nearsighted, easily startled, and very clumsy women. <laughs> like, I cannot be the last offense in this situation. Luckily, the van crashes into a chain-link fence. About half a dozen men pour out, disappear into the night, leaving behind dozens of burlap sacks filled with stolen mangoes. The fruit bandits have gotten away again. So I'm in sixth grade, and I'm on my way home from school, and when I walk in the house, it is just dead silent. It is too quiet. And I drop my bag, and as I do, I turn and I see my mother sitting in our dining room at the, at the head of our table, perfectly still, perfectly quiet, like a big black widow spider just waiting for her favorite prey to return. And as we make eye contact with all eight of them, she starts in with me. What kind of a faggot are you, anyway? I'm going to take you to a therapist, and he's going to fix you. You're a real son of a bitch, you know that? Technically, that last one I couldn't disagree with. <laughs> Spread out in front of her on the table was the contents of my stash. Not, not my drugs 
But the things that made me feel okay about myself and my place in the world, there were the bras and the panties and the skirts and all the things that I wasn't supposed to have. And I, this was not the first time I had endured one of these sessions and they could go on for hours. But the way that I did it was by promising myself that as soon as I could, as soon as I turned 18, I would get out of the house and I would take care of myself. I made it through college thanks to a maximum security prison. I volunteered there, and those men inspired me to persevere as the only black woman in my entering class. I drew courage. I drew courage from their determination to succeed against impossible odds. One night, a popular band was playing on campus, and I was the only volunteer who showed up for our weekly meeting. One of the men said, what you doing here, fool? And we all laughed. I said, well, I'd rather be here with you guys. I love you, I care about you, and I want to do everything I can to help you succeed. The room went deathly still. Finally, one of the men began to cry and said, in my whole life, no one's ever told me they loved me or cared what happened to me. Then, one by one, every man in the room, even the guard, began to cry. And for the first time since I left home, so did I. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. My mama would take us shopping, but she would always say to my sister and me, drink a glass of water. On this particular day, we were going to a special store that I had not been to before and it was Sears Roe Buck. When we got to Sears, my sister and I saw something that we had never seen before. A water fountains with signs, white water, colored water. To myself, I said, colored water? It must be like the rainbow with red and blue and green. Mama, Mama, can, can I drink some of the colored water? And she looked at us, she looked at me, and she eased over to the fountains. And she told my sister, drink from the white fountain. Mama, Oh, it's good. Now drink from the colored fountain. She told me, now you drink from the white fountain. Now drink from the colored fountain. 
Mama, the water tastes the same. She said, yes, yes. My mama did something. She took a risk to teach us a lesson that water is water and it belongs to everyone. When my first boyfriend discovered that I was still wearing my magical Mormon underwear, uh, he was surprised, to say the least. Uh, internally, I was bursting out of the closet, but externally, I was still maintaining the facade of the good Mormon missionary I had been trained to be, underwear and all. I was scared that if I took off that last symbol of my religion, I wouldn't know who I was anymore. When I was young, my mom had taught me that when the underwear becomes old and worn out, it couldn't simply be thrown away. It was too sacred. Instead, it had to be burned in reverence. So when the time came for me to finally say goodbye to that last relic of my religion, I knew exactly what to do. I built a huge bonfire, and I finally came out as flamingly gay. <laughs> All right. My son was born with uh, cerebral palsy and was quadriplegic. He moved into his first group home when he was 21. And he, all his, his new friends, a few guys, all they ever did on their spare time was talk about sex and girls. And I'd go visit and laugh with them, and then I'd go home and forget about it. Late that year, when it was getting close to Christmas, I called them and said, so Kirk, is there anything special you want for Christmas? And he said, I want sex. I said, sex? Sex is not a Christmas present. Sweaters and games and shit you don't need. That's Christmas. And besides, buying sex is illegal. I could go to jail. I don't even know where to look for sex, Kirk. And he said, you could find it, Mama. <laughs> New York, yeah. summer, 1979. A horde of people formed this human oval on the sidewalk, blocking the entrance to the cafeteria. I found a gap. I cut through it. I was grabbed, held immobile, groped in every part of my body, then pushed in my lower back. It was a mime. He beckoned me to hit him with my purse. I tried, but he bounced away, taunting, teasing. So I gave up, turned away. He squeezed my behind, and everybody laughed. I fled, feeling humiliated and powerless. Then I remembered something in my purse 
that I bought as a joke for 99 cents. I grabbed it and I returned. He was galloping around with a woman mounted on his lower back. He let her down, raised her dress above her head. The crowd cheered. She staggered away. I entered that arena smiling. I said, hi, remember me? And I lifted my can of pepper spray and I sprayed him in his face. His eyes got wide. He reached for my throat. I took two steps back and I sprayed him again and again. I sprayed him like a roach. My wife and I stood in the lobby of our hotel in the Myeongdong district of Seoul, South Korea, waiting with our interpreter, Nuna. I had picked the hotel not knowing it was in the same shopping district my birth mother had wandered around 32 years before, after taking me to the orphanage. Nuna's phone buzzed and she looked up at me and said, she's already here, are you ready? I hadn't been able to sleep at all the night before or eat anything that morning, but I nodded yes and we got into the elevator. As we rode up one floor, I tried to focus on my breathing. My wife put her hand on my back centering me for this moment. When the elevator doors opened, I turned the corner, and in the back of the hotel bar, a woman was sitting on a leather sofa in front of a large window, just her silhouette in the backdrop of morning light. As I stepped into the light, she stood up and brought her hands to her face and started crying. Oma, I said. That's the Korean word for mother. When I was in the army, I was trained to have two contradictory views of war. One was to have complete trust and faith in the people and the unit that I served with, even if it meant I had to risk my own life. And the second was to have absolutely no mercy or empathy for the enemy. But sometimes during periods of stress and the fog of war, those fine lines of vigilance can get blurred. Like during a quiet period when I walked out into the desert without my weapon, and suddenly I saw the ground in front of me starting to move and three Iraqi soldiers jumped up out of position. They had me. And just as suddenly they indicated to me, we want to surrender. Luckily, all four of us survived the encounter. But here's the thing. If I had been one of those three Iraqi soldiers and I saw me walking up there with no weapon, I would have shot me. And if I had been carrying my weapon that day, I would have killed him. Because that's what soldiers do. And luckily for all of us, I wasn't carrying my weapon. And we all successfully survived that day. But since that day, I have wondered and I have hoped and I have prayed that all three of those men went on to have long, healthy, wonderful and prosperous lives. You just heard in order Donna Otter, Terry Negridi, Vivian Anderson, Pam Burrell, Juliet Holmes, Craig Mangum, Ruby Cooper, Phyllis Bodwin, Wilson Seeley, and Ray Christian. We'll have more information and bios on all of the storytellers on our website. Just go to themoth.org slash extras. We want to end by saying thank you to all the good people who've mined their lives for stories to share on the Moth Story Slam stage and also express gratitude to our local producers, our hosts, 
and the audiences who show up again and again to give their full attention to strangers as they talk about their highs, their lows, the wins and the losses, and in 3,112 cases so far, the love. And if this episode has made you want to attend a Moth Story Slam, we'd love to see you there, we'd love to hear you there. So go to themoth.org for information on all of our live events. From all of us here at The Moth, have a story-worthy week. Jennifer Hickson is a senior director, one of the hosts of the Peabody Award-winning Moth Radio Hour, and co-author of The Moth's How to Tell a Story. She always falls a little bit in love with each storyteller and hopes you will too. Jennifer's story, Where There's Smoke, has been featured on The Moth Radio Hour, This American Life, and was a part of The Moth's first book, The Moth, 50 True Stories. This episode of The Moth Podcast was produced by Sarah Austin Janess, Sarah Jane Johnson, and me, Mark Sollinger. The one-minute stories in this episode were directed by Jennifer Hickson. The rest of The Moth's leadership team includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Jennifer Hickson, Meg Bowles, Kate Tellers, Jennifer Birmingham, Marina Cloutier, Suzanne Rust, Brandon Grant, Leanne Gully, Inga Glodowski, and Aldi Kaza. All Moth stories are true, as remembered by the storytellers. For more about our podcast, information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org.